But if we were to change our language, would that pave the way for more progressive policies? Would that allow us to frame different legislation and frame different policies that are more empathetic, sympathetic, and maybe more justifiable as we move forward? This is Defender Radio. I'm Michael Howie, and this is Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers, brought to you by the Fur Bears. I've got a great full-length interview with Bryce Cassavant coming up for you in just a minute, but first, I want to give some stuff away. I've got a bundle of love from our friends at Lush Cosmetics ready to go out, and all you have to do for a chance to win is sign up for the Defender Radio e-newsletter. Just head to thefurbears.com slash updates and opt in to receive weekly e-newsletters from the Fur Bears and Defender Radio. Anyone who signs up or has already signed up and lives in Canada will be automatically entered into a draw for the Lush giveaway. The winner will be contacted next week and announced on the next show. You've probably heard the name Bryce Cassavant. He's the former conservation officer in British Columbia who made headlines when he refused an order to kill two healthy bear cubs. He also ran as an NDP candidate in the last provincial election in BC and continues to work for the government in the Ministry of Forests, Lands, Natural Resource Operations, and Rural Development. But it is his efforts as a student that has Bryce back in the news. Bryce is working towards a doctoral degree in social sciences with Royal Roads University, and his area of study should come as no surprise. Wildlife, law enforcement, and social change. Recently, Bryce was given the go-ahead to pursue a review of 100 years of wildlife enforcement records, described as a critical discourse analysis. Bryce joined Defender Radio to get into what his research will look at, why it matters, and how understanding the history of wildlife enforcement could lead to a better world for people and the animals. What is the... the overview of this this research project you're undertaking what is the the sort of the grand idea the research project aims to look at a hundred years of wildlife records in the province of bc but not just any wildlife records specifically law enforcement records about responses to public complaints the overarching theme is that these records will contain officers' notes, information pertaining to complaints that were made uh, regarding animals that the government responded to, and that these stories and this narrative will be able to paint the picture of how we manage wildlife in the province and hopefully help us learn from history. And why why is it important to look at this? I think that's sort of the, the ultimate question almost is, why is it important that we ask these questions, that we look at this issue? Uh, I think you get a lot of people who are going to say, well, we have, you know, homelessness, we have drug crises, we have debt issues. Why should we be worried about wildlife and its interaction with law enforcement? Yeah, this is a really good question, actually. Why should uh, wildlife issues take precedent over um, any other uh, social problems that we're having in our society today. I'm not suggesting that it should take precedent, but what I am suggesting is it is fundamentally important to understand how our armed officers, those we trust in our society to give guns and badges to, how they are interacting with our community. 
And I think animals is a good place to start. Uh, it's been recognized in the literature that animals are essential to our identity as a human species. You know, this goes all the way back to time immemorial. We have, we have as humans had relationships with animals as, as far as we have recorded history. And those relationships with animals or other non-human species and how those relationships are, are formed is essential to our own identity as humans. So when we have armed officers in our society, understanding how those armed officers who represent us more broadly in society, how they're interacting with other species is a pretty good indication of how those same officers are going to interact with other humans. It's interesting looking through the the proposal, uh, your 33-pager, and you talk about your preliminary literature review. I uh, want you you say you found that wildlife coexistence is an ongoing public concern in British Columbia and it's very well cited as well as that animals are essential to our identity as humans. What you do also say then is that you believe wildlife coexistence language needs to change in order to begin understanding our relationship with wildlife and progress toward developing a societal respect for other species. What kind of language uh, are you talking about and and what is the issue with the current language? This is also a really good question. I'm full of good questions. <laughs> uh, I think broadly speaking first, you know, our phrases and terminology and how we discuss things with other people, it does shape our general belief system. You know, we digest information through narrative and through stories, through language. And mm -hmm. this concept of language forming our belief systems is, is an underlying theme throughout this research project. And in my case, I, what I'm suggesting is that wildlife law enforcement, specifically armed wildlife law enforcement, has their own sort of subculture of language. And this language often shapes wildlife management processes, in some cases, destructive processes, when there is alternatives available. As an example, when I was a conservation officer in British Columbia, we were specifically trained, taught, and told in our reports to use words such as dangerous wildlife, urban confined, garbage habituated, if we were to destroy an animal. And we were taught and told that the use of this language helps the media and the public understand why, why it was necessary to kill that animal. And in some cases, there was other alternatives available. But the use of that language, um, which are some very powerful terms, sort of justify the action without any further critical thought. And, and that's what I'm driving at. Is the language we're using appropriate in all circumstances? And I don't know that it is. And if we were to change our language, if we were to change the way we talk about and write about wildlife coexistent issues within our society, would that pave the way for more progressive policies? Would that allow us to frame different legislation and frame different policies that are more empathetic, sympathetic, and maybe more justifiable 
as we move forward. I think so. When we talk about that technical language, and this this is of interest to me uh, for for multiple reasons, uh, when I was a, a news reporter covering police issues, one of the things that would be talked about is you don't call it an accident. Uh, this is what the police officers would say, particularly those in media. So you don't call it an accident. It was a motor vehicle collision. And the, the reason for that technical term is the implication of fault or lack thereof. How much of the language being used has that kind of technical connotation versus perhaps a public relations spin? Yeah. So this is actually a really good point, which I didn't address in the proposal. But since you brought it up, I'll touch on it now. Um Officers use you know, what you're describing as, as technical language in their in their day-to-day activities. Here's here's the problem: these same uh, management structures that oversee the officers that are directing this technical language to be used, they're also the ones advising politicians on legislation reform and policy development. As an example, our Wildlife Act now includes the language "dangerous wildlife." Why? Where does that come from? That's now law. That's in our laws. So that technical language that's been adopted in the field has filtered its way up all the way to the top until it's being passed in the very laws that govern how we manage and deal with wildlife issues. So the use of technical language in the field can have far-reaching consequences beyond simple reports and media articles. If If it's left unaddressed, for decades on end, and there's no critical thought to what's being said or used, it can. It can end up in our very legislation. It's it's fascinating how language evolves like that. And you and I have talked about that in the past, uh, just one-on-one. One of the, the terms you, you use, and I've read this before, and I don't know that I fully understand it, so I'd like, like you to explain a bit, is the concept of peace building. Uh, it's something I've seen you you reference before, and I've read it in other places. What does that mean, or a peace-building model, I think is the exact phrase? I think where I should start first is the use of the word conflict. In mainstream reporting and writing, for that matter, of wildlife coexistence, issues within society, there's this term, uh, human-wildlife conflict. And it's used quite widely, both in academia, in media reporting, in government policy, in communications to the public. The list goes on. I just like the term human-wildlife conflict, because in my world, in my background, conflict has a very different meaning. When I worked for the Canadian Forces Military Police uh, here in Canada and abroad, including Afghanistan, the use of the word conflict has a very uh, a very aggressive connotation to it. And when we look at UN peacebuilding operations and how the United Nations deals with conflict, both between uh, states and, and countries and also within countries between peoples, there's a concept that conflict requires active and willing participants. And that peace building or, or reducing the, the conflict over time requires that active and willing participants come together for discussions at a table and recognize that this conflict between themselves, whether it's a state or uh, between states or between people, 
it needs to be resolved for the benefit of all. And this participatory uh, conflict resolution process that the United Nations has adopted has found its way into what we now sort of call uh, peace building operations, where we, mm-hmm. as, a, as, a, as a body, and I use we uh, very generally, meaning you know, global society, <laughs> we have this organization called the United Nations, and oftentimes when there's um, human and human conflict that's result, resulting in atrocities, sometimes war crimes, and the death of uh, many people, they will engage in peace-building discussions and sometimes peace enforcement uh, should a uh, conflict resolution treaty be drafted. Here in in wildlife issues, the use of the term human-wildlife conflict, I believe it's a misnomer. Wildlife is interacting with a human-constructed world. It can't speak to us. It interacts with us but it doesn't have the cognitive ability to understand the conflict situation that it's found itself in. And it most certainly can't come to a table and sit down and have a discussion about all its uh, feelings (laughs) as a result of urban expansion into a forest, Mm -hmm. as an example. So wildlife isn't truly uh, a willing and active participant to the conflict situation. So we don't really true in my it is my belief that we don't truly have human wildlife conflict. It's a misnomer. What we have is human human conflict over how wildlife should be managed. And that wildlife is simply a passerby or a um, an unwilling participant to the human constructed conflict situation. And that's a key difference. Because if we shift the ownership of the conflict situation from human and wildlife to human and human over how that wildlife is being managed, we actually can engage in participatory conversations and peace-building style communications where we can begin addressing and resolving the issues about wildlife management. So is that to to make the argument then that in many of the cases we hear about, um, I will make one up, for, but it's one that we'll all be familiar with. A bear has been feeding on neighborhood garbage and is now in someone's backyard and not showing uh, the quote-unquote fear of humans, which is something I'm, I'm trying to write about and I should consult with you on, that we often hear about. Is that a situation where there is a, a human intervention as opposed to saying the problem is this bear? Well, exactly. So we do have uh, bear aware programs and um, the BC Wildlife Federation has the Wild Wild Safe uh, program, which is partially funded by the province and engages in community outreach activities and other activities to inform uh, urban residents about um, coexistence and living with wildlife. And other non nonprofits like your own organization, uh, Mike, uh, the Fur Bears, does quite a bit of work mm-hmm. on uh, coyotes and has done some work on bears uh, in the past as well for living with wildlife. So there's there's many organizations um, and nonprofits um, like the Fur Bears, as, an, as a good example, that engage in um, public education initiatives on living with wildlife and wildlife coexistence. One of the... Um, Issues that I see moving forward is uh, education is is absolutely essential to the beginning of of any dialogue. But what we do as government 
is we blame the wildlife. It is dangerous wildlife. It is garbage habituated wildlife. And it is a human wildlife conflict situation. So it's the wildlife's problem. And the use of that language fails, fails to recognize that what we're really talking about is a disagreement over how the wildlife should be managed. So we've got dangerous wildlife, garbage habituated wildlife that results in the use of that language that then results in a public complaint and an armed officer showing up and destroying the animal and killing, killing the animal. Whereas, and the result of that killing action is sometimes public outrage. So we have this cycle that if we actually recognized what we're talking about is a, is a disagreement over A, people leaving their garbage out in the first place, which is a human problem, B, the use of the language which blames the wildlife, which is a human problem, and C, the armed officer showing up and killing the animal because that's the most effective solution, believed effective solution in the situation, is another human problem. So it's, it's really a disagreement over the aspects of wildlife management. And when we bring it to that circle of, of understanding, that is a conversation that on all fronts involves humans, not the animal. And if we can have that conversation in, and that dialogue in sort of a peace-building framework um, kind of a way, I believe we can begin moving our conversation forward towards better policies and and better legislation that can have more of a social acceptance of an appropriate wildlife management process that is really framed around the human world, how we construct that world, and how we interact with other species. I find it very interesting and 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 somewhat humorous, and I, and I mean this with all due respect, that you stumbled on the difference between the word uh, destroy and kill. Uh, and that's something I think that is is very important to point out is how used to language we become. And I think that really underscores a lot of what you're saying. Uh, and I'll do the same thing. You know, there's certain phrases that we just we read or hear all the time that we repeat. And you have to learn to catch yourself in a lot of them and say, no, that's not the right term uh, or that's not the the acceptable term because it does not aptly describe the situation. Yeah, and I, I find myself doing this even now. I dislike the phrase human-wildlife conflict um, for the reasons I, I just discussed, but I still catch myself because it's even in my own mind, it's been so ingrained over the years, I still catch myself yep. instead of saying wildlife coexistence issues or um, wildlife coexistence planning or living with wildlife. I still catch myself sometimes using that human-wildlife conflict uh, phrase and, and uh, even in my day-to-day conversations, I catch myself. The difference between destroy and kill is also uh, a good example, which even in this conversation, I've caught myself mm-hmm. a couple times. In my mind, when you have an armed officer or soldier for that matter, which was my previous employment, you know, these people that society has in place their trust in to give them a uniform, give them a gun, give them a badge, give them a patrol vehicle, there's a lot of trust uh, that society has, especially in a Commonwealth country, where this armed person has the ability to exercise lethal force in their day-to-day job, and they do so. And so in my mind, it's important to call a spade a spade. And the use of language that 
plays down the importance of the action being taken on the officer to sort of soften the, the image of what's happening is, in my mind, very strategic and in most cases, many cases, inappropriate. And killing is a good example. So when, when an armed officer uses lethal force and something dies, we don't say, if it, let's say it was a, let's say it was a bank robbery and a, and a police officer went in and, and everything failed and somebody ended up dying. We don't say the officer um, destroyed a person. You know, a person was killed. Lethal force was applied. And it's the same here. When we have armed uh, conservation officers or in our many of our rural communities here in British Columbia, the, the police themselves, when they are applying lethal force to a non-human species, they are, they are making a conscious decision to kill. And that decision-making process from a psychology perspective is very important to understand. When a service weapon is deployed in the application of lethal force and the officer has made a decision to kill, in my mind, I don't care if it's human or non-human, that action better be well justified and absolutely necessary. And I think that process of, of understanding what the appropriate application of lethal force is, I think that decision-making process has been well-defined in Canadian uh, common law and commonwealth law, going back to when we were still under British rule, for many, many years. However, in more recent times, as our police forces and our wildlife forces take on more of a paramilitary um, framework in their structure, Somehow, the use of our language seems to justify more actions of lethal force and killing, where so long as we're using certain terms and phrases, it's believed that the action's okay and there's no further critical discussion or questions asked. And I, I think that is setting ourselves up for uh, failure, I think it's setting the agency up for uh, public outrage issue, uh, issues. And I also think it's setting the, the officer up um, for liability and um, personal uh, issues in, in their career. If we allow officers dressed in LAPD blue police uniforms with police shoulder flashes, guns and badges and patrol vehicles, to practice the action of killing day after day after day after day on non-human species, in many cases in BC bears, which are very human-like, where, where is that threshold? Is that officer more prone to applying lethal force? Is, are they correctly able to correctly identify um, lethal force encounters with human species as well if their day-to-day -day activities don't require them to think through the application of lethal force on non-human species. And I think this area is uh, very critical to understand. And I think we can, the way we're currently engaged in our policy and legislation development is setting not only our officers up for failure, um, but also our agency uh, is being set up for failure as well with um, 
public outrage issues, um, possible lawsuits, and and potentially um, public safety issues to do with um, off- officers interacting with members of the public. Mm-hmm. I wanted to touch on briefly, and I won't go too into, I know there are various political and uh, other issues related to this. In some of your recent or more recent writings, talking about the hunting culture, talking about various types of law enforcement practices, there are criticisms that come up, uh, some of which include that your history colors your ability to to look at this issue. I think that's probably the most common one. And when we then consider your your research is to look into wildlife conflict, and that is sort of one of the items that you are well known for uh, was your stance on a certain issue and the sort of the legal fallouts and employment issues that came as a result. Is there concern for you? And how do you address that in research when, when you sort of are supposed to remain objective? Yeah, well, this is a good question. It's uh, been a criticism that uh, I have received that I'm biased or too close to the, the research. Others have, have noted this as well. And I think for me, one of the first things that I just have to do is acknowledge that. Yes, I am close to this research. Yes, I was a former conservation officer. Yes, I disagree with some of the policies and um, wildlife management processes that are currently being employed. Uh, But I also believe that my background in policing, which is fairly extensive, and my work with the Conservation Officer Service provides a very unique perspective on agency structure, organizational culture, the language that's used, training platforms and curriculum. And without that inside knowledge, it would be very difficult, if not impossible, to even begin a, a research project like this. So while I recognize that I'm close uh, to the research area, both both personally and professionally, in my mind, you know, being the accusation of being biased or having an opinion is fundamentally different than the accusation of being prejudiced <laughs> against the agency or discriminatory against the agency. And I have no um, no ill will toward individual officers or the agency, um, broadly speaking, it, through in conducting this research. My goal is very much so to help the agency move forward into more progressive wildlife management policies that protect the officers, that uphold public trust, that help the agency build positive public relations. And this is this is my goal uh, of of the research. And I believe that you know that um, the goal is is uh, well founded and is an honest uh, attempt to correct some of the historical wrongs that not just myself uh, has experienced, but also that society has recognized here in British Columbia. I like that you compare the concept of bias and having an opinion, because I think that's something we forget, or I don't know that we forget, but as a society gets missed, is when we talk science, you can't remove human opinion. Uh, That was my attitude with journalism, is everyone has inherent biases. It's a matter of addressing them and doing your very best to make sure they don't influence um, or at least are influencing in a controlled way what you produce. Now, people who who are concerned about 
the language about wildlife law enforcement, who, who worry about the way things are being run, the way operations are happening, and want to be a part of improving it, of, of having a better British Columbia. Where do you suggest they start? I think that's something that probably in some of these conversations gets sort of left behind is we, we have the, the us and them attitude in the news of wildlife conservation groups and the law enforcement and policy uh, on the other side. So where do you suggest people begin if they want to work toward resolution? This is actually a very timely uh, question. So British Columbia under the new government has actually recently begun in embarking on a public engagement process for uh, wildlife management policies here in the province. And I encourage the public to become involved and to ensure that their voice is heard and that when the government puts out public consultation timelines that people get involved and become involved in providing those comments to government, much like during the, uh, the grizzly bear hunt uh, consultation process. So paying attention to government communication and wildlife management um, reform or public consultation processes is very important if you care about wildlife, because if your voice isn't heard, then it's hard to, uh, it's hard to blame people later on if those voices weren't adopted or considered during new policy development. But the other thing that I encourage people to do is just on a, is more general in nature. Many individuals who are frustrated with wildlife management, generally speaking in the province, have a tendency to phone, uh, email consistently when there's issues that are presented in news articles that they don't like. And the, these transitory communications are largely ineffective for helping shape, um, government decisions or the thinking process of uh, elected officials. So I always encourage that if there is something that has happened in your, in your community that you're not happy with, I encourage people to take a second and draft a proper letter that is on letterhead and that is a formal letter. And it can be a complaint or just, uh, you know, like a briefing note, bringing it to your elected official's attention. But written letters in government still get more attention and elicit more professional responses than do these transitory communications of angry emails and phone calls. So sometimes that slight pause and the investment of time into a well-framed and well-crafted letter has still, even in today's um, disposable <laughs> media age, it still has quite an impact in the hallowed halls of our legislature. So I do encourage people to still write their MLAs, still write their ministers, but do so in a, in a well-crafted, formal um, way via written letter. To read more about Bryce's research or his articles, visit brycecassavant.ca. That's it for this week, folks. You can sign up to get weekly email updates about new episodes and contests and be included in this week's Lush Cosmetics giveaway for Canadian residents at thefurbears.com slash updates. You can also support the show through Patreon at patreon.com slash defender radio. 
Until next time, this is Michael Howie for Defender Radio reminding you to stay informed and stay strong. Stay strong.